Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover, a partner with Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today, we have a great set of guests. We have Todd Rothman and Jordan Sheeman of Highline Hospitality Partners. At Highline Hospitality Partners, hospitality is more than just their middle name. They have over 60 years of experience, a team of professionals to purchase, asset manage, renovate, reposition, develop, and sell hospitality properties. So what's great about Todd and Jordan is they've been working together for a long time through uh started a Garrison Investment Group, and now they've come over to Highline Hospitality Partners, and they really do an excellent job of walking us through the platform at Highline and also just what's going on in the hospitality industry and where it's going. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. We also have my favorite co-host, Jay Augustin, uh, one of my partners at Ice Miller on the podcast as well, because he's got a great rapport with these gentlemen, and so he really um, helped handle the conversation and, and help steer it in a lot of interesting places. If you have any suggestions for guests or for substance, uh, or you have any questions, feel free to get in touch with us at philip.coover at icemiller.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Today we have with us my favorite co-host, Jay Augustin, a fellow partner at Ice Miller. Jay, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Phil. This week I've been uh, boning up on my true crime podcast because I really want to make my questions that much more incisive for our guests today. It's it's going to be, you know, I want you to be di- like a direct line of questioning in a, for a witness. A lot of gotchas. Yeah. So today we have two great Great guests. We have uh, Todd Rothman and Jordan Sheeman of Highline Hospitality Partners. Uh, Todd, Jordan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Todd, you were the the first mover to jump over to Highline Hospitality Partners. Can you just tell us a little bit about the company itself, and then you know dovetail into why you decided to make the move? Sure, happy to. Um... Yeah, so uh, we formed Highline Hospitality Partners in, in conjunction with um, a family office based down in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, back in September of 2019, so about a year and a half ago now. Um, myself uh, and my partner, Chuck Pomerantz, um, we uh, ran the hotel uh, investment platform for a middle market private equity fund. Um, based in New York, uh, Garrison Investment Group. Um, Chuck was, uh, you know, Chuck is a long-term hotel operator, F&B side, hotel operations, worked for management companies, um, held regional positions, ran all sorts of hotels prior to joining Garrison um, in 2011. Um, so he brings the true kind of operational expertise. And um, when Chuck joined Garrison, uh, back in 2011, um, you know, platform had just a handful of hotels. Uh, over time, I joined Chuck at Garrison a couple of years later. Um, and over time, grew that that platform to over 60 hotels, a billion and a half uh, market cap. Um, we're very successful on the hotel front. Um, ended up exiting uh, a lot of those positions over the last four plus years. Did very well, and that led us. 
to form Highline in September of nine, September 2019. Uh, Chuck has a good friend who um, has worked with in the hotel front over many years that had been working for a family office um, down south and who was looking to really diversify their income stream. Um, very well capitalized group and uh, looked to make a move into the real estate sector. So they, they look to partner with different vertical experts. So uh, Chuck and I started the hotel vertical and the, the family office um, you know, provides us working capital. They provide us um, GP capital as well as a bucket of LP capital. And uh, also, you know, we've established other LP, third-party LP relationships as well um, with different kind of return objectives. And so we, uh, we've been pretty busy since starting the platform and, and Jordan um, joined us officially about a month ago, but I'll, I'll give Jordan, um, I'll hand it over to Jordan, kind of give his background a little bit and, and where he came from and, and why he decided to come over and, and join forces again with us. Yeah. Thanks, Todd. Um, so as Todd alluded to, I'm a, a newbie uh, here at Highline. Um, I worked with uh, Chuck and Todd for uh, almost five years at Garrison um, and spent most of my time uh, managing our debt capital markets activities. Um, and I had a, a, a brief stop between uh, Garrison and, and Highline, but what attracted me to um, you know, coming on board at Highline was really, you know, reuniting with Chuck and Todd, you know, two individuals that I have um, a lot of respect for in terms of their hospitality expertise. Um, I think we have a lot of trust in each other and have, um, you know, skill sets that uh, provide a lot of synergies in terms of uh, where I don't have the expertise in the hospitality operations like Chuck or Todd may. Um, but I have a, a bit more background on the debt side of the business. And so the opportunity for me to come over, um, and as Todd alluded to, we have uh, you know, capital to invest up and down the, the capital structure, the opportunity to come over and you know, not only continue to learn from these guys, but, but also help you know, pursue opportunities in the debt space, which um, you know, currently in the, the, the hospitality debt capital markets landscape, there's tremendous dislocation. And so that was uh, one of the things that attracted me was the opportunity to have a flexible mandate um, and and ability to deploy capital in uh, different positions, so long as we're getting compensated appropriately for whatever risk we're taking. Um, and so to to come over and, and help um, you know build out that side of our business and and like I said, continue to learn from Chuck and Todd as we hopefully you know continue to grow the platform. Todd. You know, what comes through in both what, what you and what Jordan shared is it seems like there is a, a greater degree of flexibility. I wonder if you could maybe expand on that and, and some of the other reasons, uh, you know, pivoting from, uh, from Garrison to Highline made sense after a, after a successful run at Garrison, you know, what made the, the Highline move attractive to you? Sure. Um, yeah, there, there, there is a tremendous amount of flexibility moving over from kind of your traditional private equity world to uh, more of a family office structure um, just opens, it opened up a whole world of, of opportunities where, you know, for when we're investing um, our family offices, LP capital, and we're looking at longer term, longer duration, you know, seven to 10 plus uh, year holds. And in fact, in many instances, when the family is, is investing in these deals, they ideally will never exit. 
Um, you know, they understand that if we're bringing in other outside partners, um, you know, they understand other uh, partners may not have the same objectives as them, and, and there is flexibility to exit. But for the family, it, you know, it's 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 a long term hold, so it, it's focused more on you know good, solid real estate investments that can generate a cash on cash yield. So over time, um, and, and whereas you know in the traditional private equity space. You know, you're looking opportunistically at, at you know making an investment, and you have to be able to feel confident that you're going to be able to exit in three, four, or five years. Um, so, uh, you know, especially in a time like today where there is so much uncertainty, especially in the hospitality space, um, in terms of you know the recovery from the pandemic, you know, it makes uh, it, it it makes having that longer duration it makes it more compelling that you can ride out a wave uh, and, and wait for things to get better and focus more on your, your, your basis, so to say. So it, it's just, it, it provides a lot more flexibility and, and, you know, it, it shows in the fact that, you know, in our first six months um, when we started, we were able to get two pretty sizable deals done. We had another four deals, about 300 million, um, of gross purchase price under under control at the time the pandemic hit, um, and there there was a wide array of deals. Whether you know there were some that were just more focused on buying yield, um, more stabilized, just cash flowing deals, and then there was others that were more opportunistic that you know we felt they were repositioning uh, opportunities with upside. So. Um, you know, the family office platform, uh, also one of the, the key, the nice things that, that attracted me to it was, you know, it was more of a, uh, entrepreneurial aspect to it, but in that, you know, it was kind of free flowing, um, smaller, faster pace moving, not a lot of, you know, traditional kind of corporate, um, oversight, although we, we, you know, try to make our platform uh, you know, bring that institutional aspect to our platform, but, you know, also that we're still at the same time, very well capitalized, um, able to go out and transact and, and, and that attracted me to it. Well, I was just thinking about while you were talking about just the current state of the market and how we were looking in 2019. I was just curious as your thoughts as to where the market is in terms of purchase prices and, and deals. You know, as I look at, the stock market right now. I'm by no means a stock expert. I'm just a person trying to look at it. It looks like prices are rather high. And you know, I I should mention we're recording this on February 17th. So if there's a stock market crash between now and when we release this, don't <laughs> don't don't kill me for it. But it just you know, I was wondering you know just how your since you're so in tune with the market both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I was just worried, you know, and obviously the hospitality sector has had its share of challenges since March of 2020. You know, how do you feel about your, are things on sale? You know, are, are you able to find deals out there? Just, you know, what are you, what's your gut telling you? Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start. It's a, it's a very interesting time in the market right now. Um, as you've alluded to, you know, the stock market, uh, barring, you know, tomorrow being a doomsday scenario, Phil, that you, you may have brought on inadvertently, um, you know, the stock markets at, at an all time high, um, you know, interest rates are extremely low. 
in certain subsets of commercial real estate, um, industrial being one that comes to mind, you know, arguably the, the subset has never been hotter. You know, when you when you look at at hospitality right now, it is very much a different story. You know, what what drives hospitality? Certainly, the, the leisure component, um, folks that are are vacationing to the beach or to national parks, things like that, is a is a, ma- a you know big driver of the the hospitality marketplace. But uh, corporate travel is a huge driver, um, as well as you know group business, things like weddings, um, bar and bat mitzvahs, other special events. And so while there is still some life in the leisure market. Um, you know, corporate travel is is for the most part non-existent at this point. You know, large corporations are not comfortable sending their folks on the road for fear of um, of contracting the coronavirus. And then, because of whether a combination of uh, individual preferences or you know mandates at various um, you know local, city, and state levels, you can't have a two hundred person or one hundred and fifty person gathering. So. Um, some of the the you know core uh, demand streams for hospitality right now are really non-existent, and so what that's created is tremendous operational distress. Um, and then you combine that with so you know the near term it's it's not only uncertain, but you know in in the immediate near term that it's going to be a low demand environment, meaning that uh, there's likely to be a, a cash burn. Uh, combine that with a, an aversion in terms of the in particular the bank market. Uh, from financing hospitality, and then those that are willing to finance hospitality are charging premium interest rates to um, reflect the risk associated with the, the asset class here and now. Um, you know, the, the, that has created a, a discount in valuations. What's interesting, though, is that you're really not seeing a lot of investment transactions happening in the marketplace, precisely for those reasons. I think folks are, uh, if they can avoid it, unwilling to take their medicine, so to speak. And realize a, a 10, 15, even 30% discount on their values relative to what that asset would have transacted for in 2019. Um, and so I think a lot of folks, you know, the combination of some of the, the government stimulus, the PPP program specifically, um, as well as some of the regulatory uh, guidance that has come out that has facilitated banks um, providing flexibility to borrowers, a lot of folks are just hanging on. Um, and really not, you know, forced to to transact in this marketplace where it is very fragmented um, and it can be painful to transact. So it's a it's somewhat unique in that um, you're feeling tremendous operational distress, but you're not seeing a lot of distressed transactional activity. Um, if something was maybe distressed before coronavirus hit, um, this was that nail in the coffin that is forcing some sort of transaction. But uh, beyond that, a lot of folks are opting to hold. Um, and, and just get by through a number of different means. And so I think for, for Todd and I, that's created the need to you know, be somewhat creative in terms of our transactional sourcing and, and um, you know, go direct to individuals, try to identify opportunities where we, we see there may be a need, but it may not be obvious as to the way to solve the problem. And so we can come at it and look at um, a potential you know, joint venture recapitalization. We can come look at bringing... Um, some sub debt in a, a mez or preferred equity position. We can look at buying their asset. Um, you know, different ways to try to bring capital to uh, a situation for groups that uh, may have a need but really do not want to transact in in this uh, dislocated environment. Jordan, generally speaking, in the in the network in which you guys traffic, what's been the response to to those overtures? Do you find that? 
you know, to the point where, you know, folks are still hanging on? Are they still trying to hang on to their existing economics as long as possible? Or are people starting to look down the road and, and, and evaluate opportunities to infuse runway capital into, into an existing venture makes a lot of sense? Where do we see where we are in the timeline of, of current operators' willingness to entertain these alternative investments? You know, to Jordan's point, and, you know, there, there has been a lack of, of distress transaction activity going on. But, you know, to Jordan's point as well, given, you know, kind of our flexibility and how we can, you know, look to structure in different ways or participate in different ways um, with different capital buckets, you know, we've, we've been pretty successful over the last several months in identifying opportunities. Just like you said, Jay, you know, the, the runaway capital, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And that's the space, that's a space that we find very, very interesting right now to come in and structure either whether that's in a preferred, uh, preferred equity investment or, you know, providing sub debt, uh, like Jordan mentioned. You know, we think it's very interesting. We have, we have uh, you know, one of those deal type of deals that we are, you know, working on right now that we've been working on for a little while direct. Um, with a sponsor who we have a relationship with, we know. And I think that that's how those deals are getting done um, for the most part is direct, you know, with groups that have prior relationships. Because like Jordan said, you know, a lot of groups just don't want to transact in today's environment. Um, and part of that is coming off that they, they don't want to come off as they're in trouble and, you know, in a fire sale type environment. So they're going to groups that they've, worked with in the past and they trust um, that are not going to, you know, just try to take advantage of them, but actually try to, you know, help them get through this, you know, tough time the next 12, 24 months where there are operational shortfalls that they just, you know, either can't carry themselves or, you know, are unwilling to carry themselves to infuse additional equity. Um, but at the same time, don't really want to give up on the assets yet because they believe in them long term. So we really do like that space, you know, and I think it's more that, that, that market, I think you're finding more direct transactions happening for just the reasons that I mentioned uh, before. One question kind of came to mind as you're kind of evaluating these opportunities, uh, you know, with potential partners with whom you've had relationships over the years. It also gives you insight, you know, into, you know, that particular brand or that particular market. Has the pandemic, given that you are working for a family office and that you can potentially have a longer term horizon, has the pandemic given you any insight into a, a shift in the markets that are appealing to you or any aspects of you know the nature of the hospitality properties that you're looking at? Um, has there been a, a change in your focus or, or does the thesis pretty much stay the same, recognizing that this is a pretty extraordinary time? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the thesis for us has has really changed. I mean, we've definitely pivoted as a, as a company from you know the time we started pre-pandemic, where we were just really heavily focused on straight equity asset acquisitions um, that we were looking for that you know cash on cash yield um, to to build out our family offices you know book so to say. You know, now obviously. Post-pandemic, the landscape's changed and we pivoted to what the opportunity set is now. You know, I, I don't we one of the things that's 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 a little unique about us um, and that I think would attracted both 
probably Jordan and I to, to, you know, try to build out this platform is that there's no, there's not a narrow mandate. So in terms of geography, you know, we're, we're location agnostic for the most part, you know, for, in terms of asset class um, within the hospitality space, full service, select service, we're agnostic. Um, we, you know, we're agnostic in terms of whether, how to, how to structure a transaction, like Gordon alluded to, and we both alluded to earlier, you know, we can play up and down the capital stack, you know, whether that's providing, uh, in some instances, um, you know, kind of stretch senior financing, sub debt, preferred equity, or, you know, our bread and butter has always been on the asset acquisitions, um, straight up, we can kind of go up and down the stack um, where the opportunity set lies and we have different capital buckets for different, um, for, for different opportunities. So we, uh, we just focus on, you know, where we can get the best risk adjusted returns, um, wherever that may be. Well, when you, you mentioned that you're location agnostic, I think that really, you know, gives you a lot of flexibility to evaluate the market and decide where you want to go. What what do you like right now when you're looking at investments in terms of both geography and types of investments? I know, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, you mentioned that beach travel is doing pretty well with people wanting to go get away from their homes for a little bit of time. Uh, but where are you looking in terms of, what do you like in terms of geography and types of assets? Yeah, I mean, so we we actually just last week uh, closed on an acquisition. Um, it's in a uh, what we would call a drive-to leisure location. Um, it's not a market that I think um, is, you know, kind of a major you know gateway market or a, a market that um, folks are necessarily focused on. It's in uh, South Padre Island, Texas, but um, it's a market that um, whether you're living in uh, Houston, Austin, or San Antonio, you can get there uh, in the car with you know five hours or less. There's a, an airport nearby, um, and so it's a market that does really well. Um, kind of you know Memorial Day to Labor Day, um, and you know that that is a market that even in 2020 uh, was fairly resilient um, as folks were unable to get in, get on an airplane and go fly to the Caribbean or fly to Hawaii or, or fly to Europe. Um, instead, we're, you know, they're still able to get in the car and, and drive down to the beach. So, um, I think that that's an opportunity that, um, in terms of, you know, kind of immediate potential for cash flow generation, um, you know, we're, we're expecting that that market should, uh, perform fairly well in, in the summer of 2021, notwithstanding, you know, everything that's going on in the country. But that's not to say that we're exclusively focused on those types of opportunities. So we, you know, we, we're looking at right now a, a full service hotel, um, that draws primarily on corporate and group travel. And so we think that's an opportunity to, you know, we need to come in at a, a you know, more of a discount to a uh, quote pre-COVID valuation because it's going to be a slower recovery. So, you know, to Todd's point, we can be flexible in terms of where we invest from, um, you know, the, the type of hotel, um, you know, where within the chain scale, uh, where geographically. Um, you know, I think there's you know more uncertainty in the gateway markets right now than there are in kind of solid secondary markets with a better cost of living. Um, but that's not to say that the gateway markets are not going to continue to present opportunity. And, and we've continued to pursue 
uh, investment opportunities in those gateway markets. Again, it just uh, really comes back to the way that you have to underwrite the opportunity. Um, and there's tremendous uncertainty, but um, if you can gain some level of conviction um, and you have, again, matching the right type of capital, particularly the family office where we can be a little bit more patient, um, gives us a lot of flexibility to invest in markets that um, may be a little bit more challenging for um, somebody that has a tighter time horizon to invest in where um, if it's going to be a multi-year recovery and you really need to be out of that investment in five years to crystallize an IRR, it can be much harder for a private equity fund to come into that type of investment. So I think we're, again, very focused on, on basis um, and then identifying where we feel like it makes the most sense to participate in the capital structure uh, relative to where we can get paid for the risk that we're taking. Todd, in in Jordan's outlining kind of some of the, the current transactions and some of the things you've highlighted a little bit earlier today, do you find more of a, a short-term appeal in the limited or select service hotel marketplace? The idea, right, you can drive, it's easy, it's accessible, it's affordable, you know, versus the, the full service? Or are you finding opportunities and challenges being fairly, um, you know, fairly distributed among limited select service hotels and full service product? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the truthfully micro location within a specific market. You know, it depends on, you know, is it is is a full service box? Is it a thousand room convention hotel in a gateway market that, you know, that is tough. <laughs> That's not coming back anytime soon, right? Just speaking in general, probably, you know, select serve assets um, in more drive to leisure oriented uh, markets are, are definitely less risky right now. They're performing better. I mean, you have just you have less keys to fill and you don't have that corporate group travel. You're not dependent on convention business. You're not dependent on international travel. Um, so that's that's more attractive in the short term. You know, in the long term, you know, we still like the full service, um, the full service play. You know, we've historically, um, even when we were at Garrison, have been very successful in that space. You know, looking at the kind of slightly older, you know, maybe 80s or 90s built, 250 to 400 room hotel, full service hotel in, in good secondary markets that they're, you know, Historically, any new supply that's coming into a market, they're not building those type of boxes anymore. So from a group perspective, in the long run, you're not going to have that um, new supply, any new supply that's coming in really affect you on the group side. And especially now, in the environment, there's not, unless, unless something's in the ground uh, under construction, there's not, there's going to be very limited new supply over the next two to three years, uh, you know. Just it just doesn't make sense economically, and then from a financing perspective, which Jordan can touch on, it's just the financing market's not there for new development. So, you know, we we do still like the full service opportunity. You know, and typically in select serve as well, you're you've been buying close or above uh, replacement cost, which is a metric that we like to to stay stay under. Um, Again, we're we are we are agnostic, full serve, select serve. We we go to where the the best risk adjusted return is, um, but we are not um, we're not off the full service space. Even though in the short term, um, it might be you know a little bit of a longer comeback. 
Jordan, you and Todd are are two of my favorite dinner companions, um, which, I mean, it's not a long <laughs> list of favorite dinner companions. Feeling uh, is mutual, Jay. <laughs> how have you... How am I not on this list? Because we've never Go had ahead. dinner. Notwithstanding our co-hosting uh, relationship, it's very distant. Uh, it's, it's very fragmented between Phil and me. Uh, but you two, I love you both very much. <clears throat> so one of the questions that I had in this in this environment where uh, you know you're trying to identify new opportunities for investment wherever it is in the capital stack, you have operators who are really struggling, you know, and we're in a pandemic. How have you two and Jordan? I'll go to you first. Been cultivating your your network of contacts and relationships uh, to educate them on on your platform and, and where you are and how you're able to help. How has that evolved? You know, both maybe at the beginning of the pandemic. And now, as we've kind of evolved into a place where we're we're being a little a little bit safer in our interactions, vaccines are becoming ever more, um, you know, prevalent. Uh, how are you cultivating your network? Yeah, it's definitely you have to be creative about it. Um, I think you know, in a normal environment, you know, as Jay, we've done you know many times, you would get together for a cocktail. Uh, for dinner, um, you know, coffee, lunch, whatever, and and have that you know in person. Uh, time where you could you know talk business, uh, talk family, talk personal, um, and and just you know have the ability to grow your relationship through in person interaction, and that's one of the things I think we're all missing through this pandemic is the ability to do that. So um, I think you know Todd and I probably spend uh, more amount of time each day on the phone than we ever have uh, because that's really the main avenue to you know connecting with folks. You know I think luckily. Um, we are not alone in that. Uh, everyone that is receiving those phone calls from us, um, they also are not, you know, generally speaking, not working in an office, um, you know, not spending time in person with other business contacts. So luckily, if you can even say that, we're all in a, a similar boat. Um, but I do think that uh, that first time that we're able to get, you know, back out on the road and uh, sit down to break bread, you know, it's going to feel, you know, that much more of a bonding experience because we've been for the last year um, you know, having phone calls and, and Zoom calls at home. I think we've all done a good job to figure out ways to have that interpersonal connection. And um, I've certainly done the, you know, cocktails over Zoom and, you know, it, it, it is as good as it can be uh, in this environment, but it's it's never going to replace that, that in-person connection that you can have. And I think that's, you know, why so many folks are longing for travel, whether it's, you know, leisure travel or just to get back out on the road and, and conduct business because there's a piece that they're missing that they know, um, the, the phone or zoom can only take them so far. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly feeling that. And, and so you, you do the best that you can, but, um, ultimately, you know, when you're able to get back out in person, you'll, you'll feel the impact of, uh, of having that cocktail in person and, and the ability to connect with somebody beyond just a phone call for 30 or 60 minutes. No, oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and when, when you you know you have a couple cocktails, maybe you, you say something that uh, you know you wouldn't say over a, a phone call, and that's a bonding experience in and of itself. So, um, and certainly uh, there's a reason why neither Todd nor myself had a had a cocktail before this podcast because not really sure what we would say if if we had that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want it known for the record that both Todd and Jordan are willing to go beyond uh, the initial dinner and have yet another cocktail at a second location. Uh, that's their commitment to building relationships, and, and I truly value that. And helping the local economy. And you guys do shop local. It's true. 
Uh, <laughs> hey, Todd, I wanted to ask you about the current portfolio. You had mentioned that you guys had, you know, right when you started Highline, there were assets that you guys got locked up and closed on. What are you seeing in terms of, of current occupancy for your portfolio now? Have you seen any upticks, uh, you know, as you guys noted, you know, potentially some, uh, you know, some travel, some leisure uh, activities, any improvements, you know, over the last, you know, three to six months that, that are uh, encouraging? Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen some slow improvements, you know, across the board, not, not only in our existing portfolio, which is was only two assets. Um, you know, we just, as Jordan mentioned, we added a third last week. Um, but, you know, across the deals that we're actively looking at in the market and underwriting, there, there's been an uptick over the back half of 2020 in, in occupancies. I mean, they're still at historically low uh, occupancy levels, um, but it depends on the market. But, you know, for instance, in, in our portfolio, our, we have a Marriott that's in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a full service resort style property, it has a golf course, and we're actually using the time now uh, where occupancies are so low to complete a major renovation that we had uh, was part of our business plan when we acquired the asset. So, you know, in, in one sense, it, it is tough that occupancies are so low and it, it obviously makes it a challenge to be profitable. But in another sense, we're doing this $30 million renovation that we're not having to displace anyone. Um, so it, it makes it easier to get the renovation done faster, which is, you know, positive so that when we do come out of this pandemic, we're roaring, ready to go. And, and the asset is, is going to be in, you know, best in class shape in the market. Um, but, you know, you look at, at that kind of mark, that market in Lexington, Kentucky, where, you know, occupancies of, you know, hovered in the twenties. 30% occupancy level and, you know, first quarter is traditionally very tough there. You know, we're in the teens now. Um, and, but like I said, getting that renovation done, but you look at our other asset where we have a full service asset in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And, you know, we've actually been able to run in seventies and 80% occupancy level at that hotel for the last six months. And that's, that's really, you know, do more to the fact that we have a rock star general manager in there <laughs> who is really doing an unbelievable job of shifting business and focusing on all of the the local you know transient guests kind of vacation getaway weekend getaways and just driving heads and beds. Um, but it is very much market by market. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I'd say that. You know, we've been seeing slight occupancy upticks, which is a good trend to see over the last six, eight months. And Todd or Jordan, have you seen, you mentioned the Rockstar general manager, which is awesome, right? The the lifeblood of the operation is making it work on the ground. Have you seen uh, kind of the marketing focus shift, right? Whether it's a, a remote worker who's not going in and is 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 now, you know, occupying a, a hotel room for a longer period of time or travel and leisure, uh, you know, are you adopting any, any changes in marketing or, or moves on the ground to, to drive occupancy in a way that you might not otherwise have pre-pandemic? You know, it's hard, hard to say. I mean, it's definitely, like Jordan said, the corporate travel is just not there, right? So it's, it's, 
it is heavily, heavily focused on the leisure transient guest. So for instance, like I just mentioned in our Indianapolis hotel, you know, our, our team on the ground there has been heavily focused on marketing and advertising to the local community to, you know, position the hotel as, you know, we know you've been locked up and, and, um, haven't been able to travel and get out of your homes, come to us for, for a weekend getaway or a few nights. Uh, you know, we have, you know, we have a restaurant, full service asset with other various amenities we can offer you, get a little bit, get a, get away a little bit, get a little bit of a break. Um, and that's been a huge source of business. And it's actually led to a lot of repeat clientele um, in the local market. But it, it's it, it's definitely a, you know, now across the board, much more of a guerrilla warfare on the ground, you know, searching for that local business to come fill the hotel. Uh, I'd say that that's, that's been the biggest change from pre-pandemic for sure. Jordan, anything else? Uh, yeah, I would, I would just say that, you know, in, in this low demand environment, um, you know, we will try to pursue strategies to, as Todd alluded to, put heads in beds. And in a lot of instances, that means that it's not at a rate that you would prefer to see. Um, but if we can, like we're doing in, in Indianapolis, generate, you know, occupancies that are in line, if not even in excess of pre-pandemic levels, you know, 70s to 80% occupancies, which are, you know, meaningfully, you know, outperforming our comp set. And if we have to compromise our rate to, to do that, um, it's still going to be a, a beneficial outcome for the asset. We're generating revenue. There will be some ancillary spend. Folks are going to order room service, um, have drinks sent up, whatever it may be. Um, and so if we can be a little bit flexible on our rate, that has, has been a successful outcome for us um, in that asset. I think it will take some time for the rate to recover. Um, and so when the demand does come back and, and the occupancies do return, um, I think that the rate will will lag that. But um, I think, you know, the Indianapolis asset is a good example of, you know, being creative and just trying to, you know, drive demand and drive business any way you can. And if that means that um, the, the rate is not what you want it to be, so be it, because uh, it's still a, a better outcome for the asset all in. Listening to you guys talk, I, I just was thinking really about how I can see why you like the platform quite a bit, because it kind of reminds me of if you're a general manager of a sports team or a coach of a sports team, you don't want to go into a situation where the ownership is saying, we have to win right now in the next year. It seems like with the uh, available the flexibility to look both GP buckets, LP buckets, debt, and the able to be patient and wait for the long-term returns, wait for the recovery. It really gives you that like a GM would have to set up a sustainable organization where you're focusing on draft picks and, and spreading your diversifying your risk and really building an organization. Um, it seems like you guys really have that opportunity. It's just not let's win in the next three months. You know, it's it's let's do this right way. Let's think long term. And whenever an organization is thinking long term, they usually make the best decisions, uh, even in the short term. Uh, so it just seems like you guys really have a nice situation here to to let you guys cook and do what you do. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. And, you know, the unique really the niche aspect that we bring as well is 
kind of the operating expertise that, that we have. You know, we, we really are focused on driving value through an operating agenda. You know, we have the, the key operational insights and execution capabilities that really kind of help us in, in some instances identify transactions where others you know, may not perceive the value or the, the opportunity or understand the risk or, or really possess the ability to, to create value. And that's one aspect as well, you know, coupled with the, the financial flexibility um, and the capitalization that we have that, that really sets us apart, I think, and sets us up long-term to be successful. Todd, when you speak about that, kind of the operational innovation and flexibility, have there been any changes either at your properties or kind of in the marketplace that have evolved as a result of the pandemic that you think might make sense um, you know, to, to keep in place in the post-pandemic world that, that might improve the guest experience, whether it's a, a remote check-in feature that really minimizes the amount of time at the front desk or, or other things? Do you have any uh, any of those types of initiatives or ideas that that have really stuck with you on the operational side as things that you'd like to see your assets uh, implement? Um, there, there are definitely going to be operational changes that stick uh, post pandemic, so to say, um, that historically weren't there pre pandemic. I, I think you hit on it perfectly in that there are going to be opportunities to implement more kind of remote check-in or, or remote kiosk um, check-ins, um, which also, you know, helps uh, reduce or create operating efficiencies. You know, maybe you need less. Your, the management companies that we use are, are realizing that, you know, there may be instances where you need less staff um, and that'll help drive bottom line performance um, in some areas. Who knows what's going to happen with, you know, buffets, for instance, right? Um, and how, you know, in, in a lot of these, uh, in, in all the kind of branded full-service hotels, um, Marriott's, the Hilton's, you know, in, in your full-service restaurants, you have buffets. I, I, I think those go away. I, I think, you know, people are not going to want to eat at a buffet. Um, that that in and of itself creates some operational efficiencies. On the other hand, though, you know you have more thorough cleaning procedures that are going to be implemented um, or required uh, by the brands and their brand standards. Um, so there's give and take, but you know we hire third-party management companies um, to be the boots on the ground to run our our assets that we own, um, and we actively asset manage um, and oversee the management companies, but. All of the, our different management company partners are definitely learning from, from the pandemic and identifying various opportunities um, for you know, operational expense saving initiatives that can be implemented going forward. Todd brings up a good point on you know, kind of the trust that, that uh, travelers and guests place in their brands. Jordan, you know, in the last decade to 15 years, right? The the emergence of the boutique hotel as an option away from a Marriott or a Hilton, uh, you know, been prevalent in, in gateway markets and others, college towns. Given the experience that folks have had with the pandemic and, uh, you know, the trust and the value they place in 
kind of established procedures and established brands, do you find that kind of the market writ large, you know, may find a return to the the branded full service flagged hotel uh, more attractive than continuing to pursue kind of independent, you know, kind of niche focused uh, hospitality projects? Yeah, Jay, it's an, it's an interesting question. And I think one, one constant in the hospitality industry, um, you know, through the years is that consumer preferences are all, always changing. So I think, you know, in this environment, um, a focus on cleanliness and on sanitation um, is something that is going to continue to be prevalent, but was not something that was necessarily a focus of ho- hoteliers two to three years ago. So I think to your point, there's probably a, there is going to be a subset of the traveler that um, is going to feel confident in the cleanliness procedures that a Marriott or a Hilton or a Hyatt are going to require, uh, uh, you know, within their hotels. And they may say, hey, that's, that's going to be um, something that I value. And I'm, I'm not going to go stay at a, a boutique hotel because I don't know um, the, pro- the procedures that they're instituting. On the flip side, I think that as we've all been, you know, stuck at our homes and unable to travel, um, there is a real premium that folks are going to place on uh, experiences. And so, you know, that's why you've seen the proliferation of boutique hotels as well as soft branded hotels where, um, you know, if you're out traveling to, uh, you know, Charleston or to Savannah or to Nashville, um, you want to feel like you're staying in that market and not staying at a, a cookie cutter hotel in that market. So I think, you know, it depends upon the type of traveler, but I think in some regards, you're going to see folks that are going to be even more loyal to um, the, the main brands because they feel the security associated with those brands and they understand what they're getting. Uh, on the other hand, I think you're going to see uh, a continued proliferation of soft brands, folks continuing to stay at, um, you know, autograph collections and curios and true independent hotels because uh, they really do value the experience that they're going to get by staying there and, and getting a drink um, at the bar that is it feels as though you're in and immersed in the culture of that city as opposed to in a hotel bar. So I think it's going to depend upon the type of traveler, but it, it's going to continue to um, you know bifurcate the market and and make people you know that much more focused on things that they maybe weren't focused on previously, like you know cleanliness and sanitation, or like hey, I really want to have a, a remote check-in experience. I don't want to go meet with the front desk agent, um, and so I'm going to look for that as I look to identify where I'm going to stay in this market. As you talked, Jordan, I was just thinking about traveling to Charleston, and I was just like, man. I can't wait to get back out there. <laughs> It'll happen. It will happen soon. You um, and me both. <laughs> I was like, that sounds delightful. Just staying and getting some shrimp and grits in Charleston right now. Well, Jordan, Todd, thank you very much for being a part of the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. Thank you for telling us about Highline Hospitality Partners. I enjoyed hearing about the platform as well as just your unique insights into the industry and, and how it's changed and where it's going. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Phil. Jay, always a pleasure. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 